I'm so glad you're here, but I wonder what brings you here. What hopes do you have in coming here? What is it about Jesus and his church that makes you turn up on a Sunday morning? Why aren't you out paddleboarding or something on a loch somewhere today? Jesus just fed 5,000 people, in fact, more like 20,000 people. The crowds are going wild. I mean, they are so excited about all the miracles that Jesus is doing and the signs that that makes them think, oh, this could be someone really significant. This could be the one who's come to rescue us from this Roman oppression. This is the one who's come to bring political freedom and liberation. This could be the one. This kind of Moses-like figure, a, a kind of king of some sorts. Now, if you're really sharp, you'll think, uh, hang on, Moses wasn't a king. Hold on. That wasn't until later. Not until Saul and then David and Solomon. So what, why are you saying that they thought he was a king? Why? And why in verse 15 does it say that they wanted to force him to be king and we have all this imagery from Moses' life just leading up to it? What's that about? Well, Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19 says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. These verses were seen as messianic verses by some, and then when they saw Jesus providing bread like manna, and they saw Jesus providing fish like quail, in this wilderness place, they start to think, ah, maybe these verses are messianic. This is the Messiah to come, but not the Messiah that we would interpret it as, but as a king who is like Moses, not a king who is God, but a king who is like Moses, who would lead them to liberation from the Romans like Moses led them to freedom from slavery to the Egyptians. They see this manna and quail giving prophet king and think, this is a new and promised one, like Moses in Exodus 33, who was described as king in Exodus 33, over Jeshurun, which means the upright ones. Here's the new Moses, the anointed one, come, not to save us from Egypt this time, but from the powers of Rome. So Craig Keener, biblical scholar, sums up the crowd and what they want from Jesus like this. The crowds want an earthly deliverer like Moses to supply food and bring political freedom. Jesus seeks to turn their attention from the physical food they seek to the spiritual food he is. Didn't Dennis describe that so well last week? Thus he is not merely like Moses, the mediator of God's gift, rather he himself is God's gift. These crowds could have done with reading Isaiah 55. They're hungry, they're thirsty, they want more, but they've missed the point. It says in Isaiah chapter 55, Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Why spend money on what 
is not bread and your labour on what does not satisfy. Then it goes on. And this is the key. You see, they want a king in their own mould, providing the things that they want from him and not to sit under a true king, the true king who cannot be defined by them but must be defined by himself. It says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. They wanted to proclaim him king with or without his consent, force him, then march to Jerusalem, unite behind him, and cause a revolt. They want to revolt. They want to, a revolution. But Jesus doesn't bow to their demands. Instead, he disappears to a mountain. So he's fed this 5,000. The crowd is swelling. They're getting behind him. There's real excitement. They think, oh, Jesus, you could be the one who's come to rescue us from the Romans. You could be the one who's come to liberate us and to feed us and to give us all that we want. You're going to give us the good life, Jesus. What does Jesus do? He retreats from them. He doesn't do as they ask. The crowd wanted a material saviour and not a spiritual one. A provider of material abundance and not spiritual abundance. A victory by force and not surrender. A king of the good life and not the inner life. They want to do it by force. Jesus came to do it by giving himself away. Jesus' kingdom was not of this world. As we will see him say next week in verses 32 and 33, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So what's the error? What are they doing wrong here? What's the problem? Well, it's a heart problem. Jesus perceives it in verse 15. The people were desperate to be released from this oppressive regime and with its puppet government and its very limited rights and its extremely high taxes and its foreign troops in their land. And that seems fair, doesn't it? Wouldn't we support people who, under that kind of oppression, wanted freedom? That's not the error. The problem is that they want him to serve their world-defining success and not his kingdom-defining glory. God does not exist to serve our wants, and that's good news. Because his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We are made to feast on God, on the bread of life, on all his mercy, his love, his incomparable glory, and yet we fight over crusts and scraps in the world's bin. Our need is not for bread alone. It's not for the overthrowing of Roman rule alone, the continual growth of the economy alone, salvation from addiction alone, the mastering of self-discipline alone, but Christ alone. All these things, none of them are bad. Good desires, good pursuits, but without Christ, without the true Christ, without the one who has an agenda that is not our own, but who can be trusted because he is higher than our ways, without him, we miss it. Satisfaction and joy 
Pursuing life as it's supposed to be pursued can only come under the King of Kings through his kingdom way and not by the way of the world. We cannot miss this error. It's hugely important to catch. These people are chasing Jesus and they're getting it wrong. That should be a warning to us. Could we be chasing Jesus for our own agenda and not the agenda of heaven? Because if we do, we may well be missing the point. Instead of surrendering to his ways, they're trying to force and form him into the form and shape of their own way, their own ideas for their lives, their definition of what he should say, do, and be for them. Is your prayer life filled with joy in Christ? Or is it mostly about just twisting God's arm to change your personal circumstance? If it doesn't begin with with delight in God, you might well be missing it. If it begins with, Lord, I just need this and then I'll be happy. And if you could just give me that and I'll be satisfied, that's all you need to do for me. You might be seeking Jesus, but it isn't the true Jesus necessarily. Maybe your prayers are like this. Father, protect me, my family and my labradoodle from the world and all the horrible people out there. And Lord, would you bless us with what we need? Would the economy continue to grow, keep my company uh, going and, and give me blessing of another promotion? Enough pay that maybe I can take the kids to Disney World. God, help we Jamesy boy get great higher exam results this year so he can go to university in his new turtleneck that we've bought him and, and meet a nice Christian girl in the CU. Preferably from Northern Ireland or the Western Isles. Solid. And please, Lord, by your grace, would Rangers finally win some silverware again next season? I pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen. If your prayers are like that, then be warned. You may well not be following the true Jesus. In Luke and Mark's account, they tell us that Jesus compelled the disciples to get into the boat. Now, I think that that's probably because even the disciples were struggling to see why they wouldn't just go along with this swelling movement of people, trusted people, people they knew and they loved, to march on Jerusalem. Where are you doing that in your life? And where do you need to be compelled by Christ to go a different way? Where are you deciding how and who Jesus should be instead of letting him define who he is to you? As Jesus escapes up the mountain, Mark's account tells us that he went to pray as he sent the disciples on to cross the lake by boat. And then he intends to meet them on the other side at Capernaum, which is their home, really. They didn't really have a home. But if they were, if you were to say that there was one place that Jesus and his disciples spent most time and felt most at home, it would be Capernaum. Meet me at home. The first thing I think we have to get really clear with here is that life isn't always sunshine and unicorns and rainbows. Sometimes 
it's disappointing rain. At last year we went on holiday after a fairly tough year. Um, circumstantially, it was, it was not the easiest year for us as a family. But more than that, there was just a kind of like a lethargy, spiritual lethargy, struggle with, in our relationships with God, struggle, just struggle. You know, you know go through, you, everyone's been through the seasons, I'm sure, where you're, you just feel like these disciples in the boat who are, are rowing as hard as they can, but, but the wind is against you. And it just feels choppy and stormy and difficult. And you're thinking, what are we doing here? This is really quite hard work. And so we decided to go to Mal for two weeks, get two weeks totally off, got some good books sorted. And um, of course, you're hoping for sunshine. Out of 14 days, we spent 13 days. Now our, our little um, Airbnb was up on top of a hill, which we thought was lovely. Because in the photographs, you had this incredible view of the sea. It was beautiful. We could only see the sea once in 14 days because the other 13 days we were in clouds. Finley decided that he would have this sick bug that he couldn't shake. Poor wee guy. Every night he was sick. <laughs> Almost every night. And it was just pretty brutal. Not the holiday you'd hoped for. We can end up in situations and seasons where we feel battered. We feel like we're rowing into the wind. It feels like it's constantly raining. But there's some good news. The disciples went down to the lake and it was evening. And in verse 17, John doesn't just mention it was dark to note the time of the day, but actually to raise the danger antennae of the listener. Lake Galilee had this dangerous reputation at night. Now, even today, the Sea of Galilee is known for storms quickly rising up, whipping up and putting vessels in danger, especially at night. There was a, an American traveler called William Thompson. He documented his travels in Israel, and he said this uh, after getting caught in one of these storms. My experience in this region enabled me to sympathize with the disciples in their long night's contest with the wind. I have seen the face of the lake like a huge boiling cauldron. The wind howled down the valleys from the northeast and east with such a fury that no efforts of rowers could have brought a boat to shore at any point along that coast. No wonder that this sea and other seas were symbols of the grave in Jewish culture. Symbols of death. <laughs> a place where Leviathan, this mythical sea beast who would lurk in the deep and the spirits of those who died were said to come before sinking boats. And when they did, they knew that death was impending. So it's interesting that John immediately follows this description of double danger with another warning. Jesus has not rejoined them yet. As they row out into the watery grave, they do so in the pitch black. And John mentions darkness and light in relation to Jesus all the way through this gospel. Not only was it dark at night, but they were without Jesus, the light of the world. Out there on their own, in the waves, in the wind, being battered. And so here is would have feared, as they listened in synagogues in Ephesus and other places, 
the sea did grow rough and they started to make very slow progress. They rode and they rode and they rode with stormy winds against them. That's why they were rowing. The sails wouldn't have managed it. They couldn't have gone into the wind with the sails. Even if you were tic-tacking, I don't think that's what it's called. Not a sailor. Um, but I'm told, sails down. And yet they persevered three or four miles. Exhausting work. So why did they keep going? Why didn't they just go back, take a break and try again in the morning? We can only assume that it was because Jesus had instructed them to and that they would agree they would meet him on the other side at Capernaum. So we've got to keep going. Jesus has told us to do this and so we've got, guys, we've got to do it. But surely they're starting to go, why are we even doing this? Maybe they're arguing amongst themselves, I don't know. Maybe they're going, oh, why did Jesus tell us to do this? Why didn't we just listen to the crowd? Have we got this totally wrong? Is Jesus like, is he whack? Like, why are we out here? This is not sunshine. When we chose to follow this rabbi, we did not expect it to look like this. Where's the good life? This isn't fair. Where's the one doing what you ask and now, now we're doing exactly what he said to do and we're stuck in a storm, exhausted. I'm going to die out here. There, in the middle of a sea, of the sea, a figure approaches the boat. He is walking on water. In verse 19, the disciples were terrified. Why? Well, most likely they thought this was a spirit and that they were about to die because that was what Jewish culture taught you to believe. But then the ghostly figure speaks. It is I. Do not be afraid. Or I am. Do not be afraid. Now we're going to be getting familiar with Jesus' I am statements as we go through John's biography of Jesus. And this one acts like an introduction to the other four. Eh, seven. Not four, seven. No, met no metaphor is attached to this one, but it almost like, like, kind of acts like a teaser of what's to come. And actually, if you really, I, we don't have time right now, but if you really got into this story and the whole narrative around this, the kind of Exodus theme that's going on with the bread and, and the feeding of the 5,000 and what comes next week as well, you could actually find all kinds of references, especially when you start cross-referencing it with the other Gospels where Jesus says of this crowd that they're like a sheep without a shepherd. You start to see that actually he is introducing all these I ams. Go and see what they are. And this story would actually describe many of those I am's through the narrative. Now, the disciples are asking, is he really the one come to save us from our oppression? And now, Jesus comes and says, I am. And actually, Moses asked a similar question. He asked, a question around this kind of thing as well, like, can, can I trust God? Who's, who, who is it that, I, that is going to come and save me from my circumstances? 
Who is it that's going to come and save the Israelites in Egypt, the Hebrews in Egypt? Well, while Moses was on Mount Horeb at the burning bush, after fleeing to the hill country in Midian, and the Israelites were still enslaved, growing under the oppression of a foreign power, the Bible says God looked on them with compassion. And there on that mountain, away from the throngs and those desperate Israelite slaves, God met with Moses at the burning bush, revealed himself as I am, and sent him with a message of salvation then to the elders in, back in Egypt, the elders of the Hebrews. The I am is I am who I am. The one who always was, always is, and always will be. The one who cannot be compared to anyone else. Jesus will say in chapter 8, verse 58, before Abraham was born, I am. So what's Jesus now coming and saying to the disciples? After this crowd has been begging with Jesus to, and trying to force him to be this Moses-like leader that's going to part, who's going to basically save them from the Romans, a bit like what he did with the Egyptians. They might be asking, is he going to come and is he going to bring all kinds of power like we saw God do through Moses? Is he going to bring plagues? Is he going to divide the sea? What's going to happen? And right here, Jesus comes, not as a revelation to say that he is like the mediator Moses, but that he is I am himself. God appears on the waves. I am. Do not be afraid. The king of kings, not just the king, comes on the water to the disciples, these 12 disciples who would represent in the church going forward, we see that they would represent like the 12 tribes of Israel as we go, they go out to the nations. Think about it, Moses went back to the 12 tribes, didn't he? And spoke with the 12 elders. Do you see the significance of this moment? God parted the water for Moses so the Israelites could walk through on dry land. God kept the Egyptians in the darkness of a cloud for Moses, so the people would be rescued and taken to the promised land. But God didn't part the Moses, uh, didn't part the Moses. God didn't part the waves for Jesus. Jesus walked on the water and commanded the waves. God didn't provide light for the twelve to be saved. He, Jesus, is the light appearing on the water to take them to the land. The crowds wanted another Moses, but as Jesus walks in water, he fits a picture of God, not of one of his prophets, priests, or kings. 700 years after Moses, in the 6th century BC, Job described God as the one who speaks to the sun and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens, and get this, and treads on the waves of the sea. Jesus is saying, I'm not a picture of a new Moses. I'm a picture of God. I am God. 
God in the flesh. Come to rescue. He's not just a better, he's not just a, another prophet, a priest, or a king like Moses. He is not a warm-up or a sign of a better one to come. He is God in the flesh, come to liberate all mankind from the ultimate tyrannies of sin, Satan, and death on this watery grave as they are about to die. He, re- he speaks into their situation by walking on the water like God walks on the water and they see he's not just like Moses. This is God. This is someone that we can trust for all circumstances, no matter what. This is, the God in, this is God in the flesh come to save. As John laid out in his prologue, in him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. The Nicene Creed declared it in the early 4th century. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. Let me just leave that wonderful union of Father, Son, and Spirit hanging there in its mysterious glory and make clear what is known. God, Father, Son, and Spirit meets with you in your storm. He meets with you in your trouble. You are not floundering on your own. So look up and see his eternal gaze looking straight back at you. He walks on the waters of your grave with all the hope of salvation we are promised in him. Later, we will see that he will say, I am the resurrection and the life. Now they receive him onto the boat. Are you in a storm and keeping Jesus at a distance? Maybe because, like the disciples or the crowd, you have a view of Jesus that is distorted. And because of that distortion, you're struggling to invite him on board. Maybe you think that your, your suffering or your difficulty is actually a sign in which would make it difficult for you to even have a relationship with him because you think you're not worthy. That misses the whole point. The whole reason he came was because he knew you would be in suffering and difficulty. He knew that you wouldn't be good enough. He knew that. That's why he's come. He's come to save you. He's come to invite you in. And he's saying, receive me. Take me on board. Receive me. Enjoy all that I have for you. Immediately, the boat reached the shore. Now, this miracle doesn't get much airtime. The miracle that gets all the airtime is the walking on the water, but there's two miracles here. Jesus didn't just walk on water. He transported the 12 to shore in an instant. One moment, they're dazed at the transformation of their circumstances from the storm to a calm, and now, the next, they're home. They're in Capernaum. Wow. And he takes them to the place they were heading, it says in verse 21. That was the one place, like we said earlier, that 
if these guys could call home, it, it would be Capernaum. You've got to love, the more that you read the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the more you see Jesus. If you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Psalm 107? And then glance down to verse 23. Some went out on the sea in ships. There were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were at their wit's end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. Now listen to this. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm, and he guided them to their desired haven. Jesus sees you in the storm, and, in one, and one day all the winds will be quiet and the waves will be hushed. Leviathan, this creature who symbolized Satan and death in the oceans, does not have the last word. The violent sea Satan loves to stir up to a tempest and is symbolic of the grave, do not have the last word. Jesus does. One day, whether it's now in this life on the moment you are taken home, he will say to you, I am, don't be afraid. And to the storm he will say, be quiet. Only Jesus can do that. And one day, like Jesus rescues the twelve from the watery grave and takes them immediately back to shore, we too will be taken from the storms of this life and its impending death to a better shore. Not just to a promised land, flowing with milk and honey, but to a new creation, a perfect place. A place where none of this suffering will exist anymore. Where there will be no more storms, no more pain. But you will be with him in absolute perfection and enjoy him forever. Your forever home awaits you. And from the grave, he will take you there. If you put your trust in the true Jesus. Do not design Jesus into your own wants. To fit a mold for your own wants. As soon as you do that, you may well be walking away from him. Let him whose ways are higher than your ways decide how it shall be because you can trust him he's sovereign and good he's the great I am nothing compares not death not sin not Satan not any powers of this world compare to the power of Christ who has overcome through the cross
Now, Jesus has well and truly confused the crowds. Eventually, they figure out where he is, and they get into boats and start out for Capernaum, and we can assume the crowd probably did dwindle a little bit. But still, there would have been a lot of boats. Now, the coast would have been littered with fishing, um, and so it is quite possible that hundreds and hundreds of boats sit out that day. So when the disciples get to the shore, and they look up, and they realize, they're still coming. The crowds are still there. All these voices that are tempting them not to go Jesus' way, but to go their way, are still loud. And it's only going to get worse. Oppression is going to come for Jesus and his disciples. Imagine looking up. Okay, here we go. But this time Jesus is with them. It's not dark, it's light. There's a dawn that has come. And I'm not sure where the disciples are at this point. How much of this they've understood. But the crowds are confused and lost. Their own attempts at forming the story of life and trying to force Jesus to serve their narrative leave them so desperately close and yet so very far away. They've set their hope on Jesus being someone he isn't. And like the rich young ruler who walked away sad because to follow Jesus you would need to give up his dreams of wealth, most of this crowd will walk away sad by the end of this chapter. Asking, who can accept this teaching? John will say, from this time, many of his followers turned back and no longer followed him. The disciples have seen an external sign in these two miracles. The crowds didn't see that, the the disciples did. But like them, we must seek for internal change that comes when we receive I am. Who will quiet our fears and bring peace, even in the battles and storms of life. Let's not just chase sunshine. Let's pursue the light of the world who has come. Let's receive him. And look to him and his astonishing light, the I am who has come.